Well, we have our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, on this podcast. When we decided to do that, we had no idea how much politics news there would be. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon and Seth Richardson. Good morning, guys. Good morning. morning. That that lilt you hear in my voice is I go in this morning to get my second shot. So I'm very excited. I'll be fully protected, but I'm probably going to have a bad reaction and be sick as a dog for the next two days. We'll yeah, see. warning to our podcast listeners. Uh, you know, Chris might not be with us tomorrow. Or right? I may be out of my head. <laughs> I, I actually I get my second shot on Saturday. Did, did you have a bad reaction to the shot the first time around? I, I did have a, a reaction, but it wasn't bad. But And I understand that makes it likely I'll have a bad reaction. But I was talking to somebody ex- almost exactly my age yesterday. <laughs> was bedridden for three days with 103 fever after the second shot. Now, he did stupid things like go out for a long bike ride after he got the shot and then drank some beer, so he's probably dehydrated. But I'm, I'm kind of... Yeah, know, no, I'm my sister was really knocked down by it. So yeah. good luck with that, Chris. We'll see. If I'm not here tomorrow morning, you'll know why. Let us begin. Why did news from Dr. Amy Acton, Ohio's much-beloved former health director, demoralize Democrats Tuesday? Seth Richardson and Jane Cahoon, this was a sad day because I was really excited about the politics contest that we would have had with her. I think the ability to attack her didn't exist. It would have been like attacking Mother Teresa. And then she drops out. So, Seth Richardson, why? Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're still kind of parsing out exactly why. I think you can kind of infer some of the things from her statement. She said she wanted to take a step back from public life and she you know, sort of realized why people were reaching out to her, um, you know, both kind of behind the scenes and publicly. Right. Because it's it's not like, you know, she she you know resigned last July and it's not like she ever left the public consciousness. Like anytime she pops up anywhere, people are still so excited to see her. You know, she went and got vaccinated at Columbus Public Health or Franklin County Public Health and kind of got mobbed a little bit down there. From what I can infer from, you know, why she decided against it. I mean, politics is just an ugly game. Like she's never run for office before. I, I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with, you know, some people will probably say like, oh, she has a lack of fight in her. I think that is just probably wrong. You know, running for Senate is a tough thing to do. And it's not like it's all just, hey, I want to go out there. I want to talk to people. You know, most of running for public office is sitting in a room and asking people to give you money. And if people can't do that but part stop, but stop but stop she had the money i mean we knew from people in the background there the national democratic party would have made sure she had the money i want to push back a little bit on on that she didn't have the fight in her i and jane cahoon spoke to this yesterday when when she read the her statement everything in her statement is a reason to run everything she said is a reason to have a a new person with a great perspective get on the political stage and she didn't. And it, it, I just I think it was more of, you know, she talked to her family. They said this is going to be hard. And she decided she didn't want to take all the flack. But it's sad because she's exactly the kind of person you'd want in public life. Jane Coon, you read her statement and said, said that, right? You said this reads yes. like an argument for yes, running. You totally stepped on what I was going to say. About- <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, she talked about this fresh approach to leadership that's honest, collaborative and empowering. And she said some really, I mean, she sounded like the the person we knew from the early days of the pandemic who was rallying us to all unite and for the common good. You know, she said 
Ohioans do not accept anything less from your elected officials. Our leaders' words and actions matter. We must set the bar higher. And I mean, there was all kinds of language like that in her statement. And as you said, if she didn't say like near the top, I'm not running, I would have maybe thought she was running because she said like, what's at stake is nothing less than the heart and soul of our country. And what kind of nation do we aspire to co-create? You know, we need to honor the dignity of true public service. So anyway, I think her candidacy would have attempted to rise above the level of meanness that we have now in our politics. And of course, it won't surprise you to learn that right after the news came out, Josh Mandel, of course, tweeted something mean about her, you know, so I'm afraid that we're we're just going to have the old mean campaign all the way around. And we're going to talk about the Republican side a little later in the podcast. But but Seth, if she would have run, don't you think we would have had a very different campaign than we've had in a long time because it would have been hard to to attack her as a person? I, mean, I, I was expecting if she ran that this would be a much more substantive campaign about the direction of the state and what's important to Ohioans, real issue discussions, that the Josh Mandel blather and attack dog stuff wouldn't work against somebody like Amy Acton because she seems impervious to it. Yeah, I think she's got a little Teflon in that department because the the other thing to consider is that an attack on Amy Acton would have functionally been an attack on Mike DeWine. Now, someone like Josh Mandel wouldn't have cared about that, but we'll you know talk about this a little more later. It's not like his, you know, whole line of rhetoric is necessarily translating into fundraising and support for him. When you do have those kind of transformative figures in politics who do sort of transcend the political mold, I think the public kind of grants a little more gravitas to what they say, right? They can speak of these sort of grand ideas and uh, grand vision, and and people are more inclined to listen. And I think she could have gotten, I think, frankly, both through a primary and a general election without having to get too terribly ugly. Now, I know one concern that Democrats, some Democrats did have would be, would she be willing to go after Mike DeWine? Or would there be kind of a a detente there, right, where they're not going after one another because they work together and they both seem to have a lot of mutual respect for each other. But I I, I don't think that she would have to attack Mike DeWine. And I, I think that, you know, while the Senate race isn't necessarily at the top of the ticket, when you do have somebody who is not popular just in Ohio, but popular nationally, there's a good chance for some coattails effect there for everybody else. All right. But I see, I think with because of who she is, she would have run a campaign where she never attacked anybody because she wouldn't have needed to. She would have made the campaign about what her vision is and what she wants to do. She wouldn't have had attacked Mike DeWine. She could have ignored the attacks of anybody coming after her. And that that would have been interesting because we don't have anybody who's run like that. I mean, you know, Tim Ryan is now the fallback Democrat at the moment. And, you know, he'll be in the scrum. He'll he'll fight. And you just don't see the same kind of campaign. I also don't think he can electrify the middle voters and that this makes it more likely that the Republicans will win. Let me ask you this. It's still really early. I mean, it's it's April and of, of a year before the election. Is this final? Or is there a possibility that she could just sit quietly, let the Republicans continue to have a food fight, and then in October, November, say, you know what, I am going to run? Because if she's out, 
nobody can attack her. Nobody's going to run against her. And if Tim Ryan were smart and didn't announce until later and just let the Republicans keep eating their own, they'd all be better off. Did she do this as a strategy to to avoid attention for the next six months? I don't think so, because I think you run into a problem where if you say you're not going to run and then change your mind in six months, then people will start to question how devoted you are to the office and whatnot, right? We've seen some of those attacks, especially coming from the right on her as far as her time at ODH, right? You know, criticizing her for resigning when, you know, I think, again, we can kind of infer why she resigned at that time when, you know, the state was opening up kind of against the uh, best practices for coronavirus mitigation. If she comes back in six months, will she have support? Yeah, she'd have support anytime she got in the race. I think that the broader public would you know, like her much more. But I think it would give some pause if she did pull something like that and decided to to just come, you know, say, I'm not running. And six months later, okay, well, now I am. Come on. She could come back and say, I've been listening to what the other candidates are saying, and it distresses me greatly to think that that could be the future of this great state. And so even though my initial inclination was not to run, I've been convinced I can make a difference. And and do serve the people of Ohio in a way that they deserve. I don't know. I think there's a path if she wanted to do it. And then it would this be is just a- your wishful thinking, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and to be clear, yeah, I think I think you are right that there is a path to do that, especially given what we have seen from the Senate race thus far. Whether that is part of some grander strategy that she has at the moment, I would say probably not, because that's a pretty risky gambit to make. But is there an opening for her to come back if she so decides? Yeah, I think that that is absolutely the case, especially, like I said, if this thing just keeps getting uglier and uglier. Right. So, Amy Acton, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are 70 Ohio school districts, including some in Northeast Ohio, thinking they can replicate their success of years ago in getting Ohio school funding law declared unconstitutional, this time with an attack on vouchers for private schools? Jen Cahoon, this is really interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. So a lot of these people are from, you know, the original Coalition for Equity and Adequacy of School Funding, but the, the name of this group now is Vouchers Hurt Ohio, and it includes about 70 school districts, as you said, and they plan to sue the state over the laws that allow people to get, you know, public school vouchers supported by public school money, you know, for private school tuition, arguing that this results in an educational system that's unconstitutional. They're going to focus on the same part that the famous DeRolf school funding lawsuit did in the 90s and early 2000s that resulted in this unconstitutional ruling, that the part that says that states have to provide a thorough and efficient system of common schools throughout the state. They think that billions of dollars have been sent to private schools and that's weakened the public school system. And this includes some Northeast Ohio districts like Bedford, Fairview Park, Cleveland Heights University Heights, and and Wycliffe. So as an example, the Cleveland Heights University Heights says it loses about $9 million a year in state funding because it's going to private school vouchers. And, you know, they have just under 5,000 kids and then another 1,700 go to private schools. So they say that's money they need. They have a lot of students who are from low-income households and from racial and ethnic minorities, and they say they need this, this money. It was interesting, William Phyllis, the the longtime advocate with this coalition, he put it this way. He said, 
the fire department doesn't fund people to get their own fire protection and the police department doesn't give vouchers out to people to hire their own security. So it's supposed to be a system for the common good. But there's a difference there because there's no law that says that the state is required to, to fund the police departments. In this case, you have a law that says the legislature must fund an equitable system of common schools, and that's not private schools. And the, the, the wording of that's pretty specific. So I, it sounds like they have an interesting strategy. Of course, it's how the Supreme Court interprets it. And we've got a couple of justices on there that would never right. go and for I this. think they've already ruled in, in favor of vouchers before. But the, the other side of this is that people who advocate for the vouchers say that public school funding has changed over the years. They're spending a lot more per kid. And they said, we can still have a traditional system of public schools, but there's no reason why lawmakers can't create additional choices for people. So we'll see how many years it takes to sort this one out. Yeah, I doubt any of us will still be doing this. <laughs> Not okay. me. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Nina Turner and Chantel Brown are the leading candidates to replace Marsha Fudge in Congress. Who's ahead in the battle for campaign money? Seth Richardson, they both announced this week how much they've got. Who's winning? Nina Turner by quite a bit. You know, she's raised more than $2 million since the race began in the past quarter alone, which, you know, from the beginning of the year to March 31st, raised a little more than $1.5 million. She spent quite a bit of money, but she still has more than a million in the bank. That's a very healthy number. You know, Chantel Brown, the first month of the race, when Nina Turner raised about $600,000, a little more than $600,000, actually, you know, Chantel Brown raised $40,000. It was not a good look for someone who was kind of considered the insider favorite, right? Given that she is the chair of the Democratic Party and sort of a protege of Marsha Fudge, she has rebounded a little bit put up, I believe it was $640,000 is what it was, which is a respectable amount of money for sure for, you know, a congressional race. It's just, you know, getting over, you know, Nina Turner is a, a fundraising machine. Keeping up with that is going to probably be impossible. So they're going to have to find abstract ways to get around it, especially with Nina getting more institutional support now. I don't think this is going to happen. The Democratic Party of Cuyahoga County is not going to endorse in this, are they? It doesn't sound like it, and I, I I wonder myself if that is actually going to cause some problems because it sort of sets a precedent where, well, you didn't endorse in the congressional race. Why would you endorse in X race in the future or something like that? Well, I think the tradition is if it's an open seat, they let the the voters decide. If it's an incumbent, that they'll they'll endorse the incumbent, but. It's it just it's that that's a big influence on how people vote. You see them walking into the voting booth with their little Democratic postcard listing all the, the endorsed candidates and it makes a difference. And if Chantel Brown doesn't have that in her pocket, I don't see how she can win this. Nina Turner has the name recognition. She has the money. She's racking up endorsements left and right. And she's running a really good campaign. Like, yeah. you know, I think I think at the beginning of this, and you can include me maybe in this camp as well, there was this sort of thought that Chantel Brown was going to have all the institutional support, and that sort of gave her the leg up versus Nina Turner, who, you know, is coming back from doing national stuff and maybe doesn't have the base of support she once had here. And really, I think that those that narrative has kind of been, you know, if it hasn't been completely broken down, there are at least a lot of cracks in it. Well, and if you talk to to leaders in the county, they they'll they won't say it publicly, but they'll say 
yeah, I've talked to both of them, and there's hands down, I'm with Nina Turner. She's she's got an agenda. She's a dynamo, and and there's a bit of resentment that there are people trying to make her sound like a socialist nut job. That because Nina Turner was in the state legislature, she's got a long bona fide career of of voting on things that matter to people, and this idea that that she's just a crazy socialist it's offending some of her supporters that that's how she's being characterized given her history so i i just think it's hers to lose and then it'll be interesting to see what happens to the county democratic party because as you pointed out the machinery is all backing Chantel. if you're nina turner and you know that your whole democratic party machinery worked against you what do you do? Because isn't the congressperson kind of the titular head of the party? Yeah, that's that's one thing I've been sort of, and you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself on this, right? But what does happen to the yeah the county party if Nina wins? She would kind of by default be you know, probably the most powerful Democrat in the county, um, along with maybe whoever wins the mayor's race. But you know, it it seems counterintuitive that the chair of the Democratic Party will remain kind of abjectly opposed to the congresswoman if she were to win. Now, if Chantel wins, this is kind of a moot point, right? But uh, I guess in that case, you know, Chantel probably would consider stepping down from the party. But yeah, the future of the party is really kind of hanging on this race. Marsha Fudge has been the head of the party. I mean, she was the difference maker in the Q deal. and But because of her position with the federal government, she has to be mute on this. And so that hurts Chantel, it'll be interesting to see. The money is clearly lopsided. It'll be interesting to see if the vote is too. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So that news we discussed a while back about how people from the coasts were choosing Cleveland as their base for remote working during the pandemic, and eh, not so much what it was cracked up to be. What's the real story, Jane Cahoon? You know, doesn't it just figure that we get a good news story about Cleveland and it, it turns out to not be that good? <laughs> So there was this study from LinkedIn, the professional networking site that was released last month that ranked Cleveland fifth in net new residents during the pandemic, which seemed to suggest that, you know, the the virus was altering migration patterns and people were maybe leaving the coast to come here because of our cost of living and other factors. But when you look at the data more closely now, it turns out that we haven't really experienced a growth in population. It's more just like we're losing fewer people. So according to LinkedIn, Cleveland's inward migration in 2019 was 82% of its outward migration. And then during the pandemic, that ratio improved to 87%. So it's still a loss of people, but not quite as as much. But then there, there's this other economist, Stefan Whitaker, with the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, who dove deeper into this and did an, a broader analysis based on the information tracked by Equifax, the consumer credit agency. And that found evidence that fewer people are leaving Cleveland, you know, and other similarly sized metro areas that have lower costs. But, you know, basically the bottom line is that there's a potential for gains here, but it it just, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I still had a hard time reconciling the difference in the two stories after I read them both a couple of times. The original story said, they looked at the number of people that were changing their locations to cities and that we were fifth in the nation. And then the new thing says, well, for every 100 people that leave Cleveland, 
87 come in well that doesn't reconcile with yeah the it, people changing supposedly their we we you know we were outperformed only by salt lake city jacksonville richmond and sacramento that we had this six percent improvement but anyway yeah i don't quite I think get it i think linkedin is full of beans we will have to be careful <laughs> about basing any stories on what they have to say ever again it's this week in the cle with Bernie Moreno, Jane Timken, and Josh Mandel officially in, and several others likely in, what are some of the ways the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate in Ohio could go? Seth Richardson, I asked this question because I'm hoping that one of the options that you go into is that somebody else will rise who's not so pathetically desperate for Donald Trump's attention and approval that will try and make this an election about the people of Ohio. But I'm not sure you're going to tell me that. Well, you know, I wrote about that a couple of weeks ago, right, when it was just Timken and Mandel in the race. And it's kind of this uh, it seemed like this race to the bottom to uh, really just kind of show deference to this guy and uh, not really worry. It just it, it's so bizarre to me to see what has transpired in this. Right. Because Donald Trump's support is very important. And I understand that. And I think everybody understands that. But Donald Trump's support is not the end-all, be-all that is going to make this race. I think there's a pretty high degree of possibility that he's not going to endorse in this primary because what is one thing we know about Donald Trump? He does not like backing losers, right? He, you know, the Politico story the other day, he mentioned Jim Renacci as being, you know, not being a winner. So why would he stake his reputation on this race when he can just wait it out until there's a clear and concise winner or you know, somebody emerges from the primary and just back them in the general election. So I, I think that we need to be prepared for the possibility that Donald Trump is not going to be nearly as big a factor in this. Now, what could happen is he could come in and say, well, we have a lot of great candidates, but I don't support this person and kind of, you know, squash them down. Now, does somebody emerge who is going to come and be not necessarily anti-Donald Trump, but just a little more independent, which is something we haven't really seen thus far? I think we'll probably see that. You know, Steve Stivers had a very solid fundraising haul this quarter. I think he raised $1.4 million, which is actually more than Josh Mandel, even though Stivers hasn't announced or anything like that. I think it's a pretty good indicator that he's going to. Does he kind of come in and sort of play the Rob Portman-esque role in this race where, yeah, you know, I support Donald Trump, but hey, I'm my own guy or I'm my own person. We haven't really seen that so you know, far. But, but the, the thing about Donald Trump that throws me is... He was popular in Ohio at the election, but after the election, he took steps to basically sought to overthrow the government. A lot of people who voted for him and watched what he did before the Capitol insurrection were turned off. It, you know, the Josh Mandels, the Jane Timpkins, they're still hearing from the fringe far right of the base saying Donald Trump, Donald Trump. But the middle of Ohio is, is not there necessarily, even though they're investing all their their capital and getting Donald Trump's ridiculous approval. I, I just, I, I would think that there's a candidate out there that might be smart enough to stand up, you know, in John Glenn style of fashion saying, look, I'm my own guy. I'm my own person, my own woman. I, I don't need Donald Trump's approval to do the right thing by Ohio. I, I, you know, I voted for him because I'm a, a staunch Republican, but I, I really don't care if he endorses me. I'm looking for the endorsement of the people of Ohio. I would think that would resonate with a lot of voters in the end, even some Democratic voters, if there's a lame Democrat running. So I'm just it, I'm not surprised Josh Mandel's doing what he's doing, because as we've discussed, he's he'll do anything, say anything to to get attention. 
James Timken was Donald Trump's choice. I'm a little bit surprised Bernie Moreno is going down that road. He could have been the independent. Will anybody do that? It's <laughs> part of me wants to say yes, right? Because when we're looking at what the over under in candidates in this uh, primary is probably going to be at least six, right? Six with at least some profile, maybe some other kind of, you know, fringy people, so to speak. You know, you think that somebody would think that there has to be some kind of lane there. Again, not first, not necessarily as like an anti-Trump lane, but like you said, just kind of an independent thinker kind of lane. Someone who says, hey, you know what? I would love to have the president's endorsement, but that is not my focus right now. My focus is on right. X, Y, and Z in Ohio. Exactly. And that is just something that we have not seen yet. Maybe Bernie kind of goes that tack a little more as the campaign goes along. I don't know. I think if Steve Stivers or Mike Turner get into the race, that is probably more along the lines of what you will see. But, you know, the the person who seemed to make the most sense for, to be a candidate like that, who's thinking about getting in the race is J.D. Vance and, you know, who was openly against Trump, right? In 20, you know, described himself as anti-Trump. He's on recording say that, saying that he might vote for Hillary Clinton, which is, you know, the worst thing you could possibly do if you're a Republican. <laughs> and to, to see the kind of the, the sort of rebuilding of the narrative that Vance is trying to do, who everybody kind of equates with sort of the never Trump kind of mold of Republican sort of morphing into like, well, no, he's saying I evolved on the issue and I actually support what he's doing. And yeah, immigration's bad and whatnot. You know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that anybody is going to emerge that way. I, I think if if any two candidates are likely to do it, I think it's probably Steve Stivers or Mike Turner. All right. And you got a taste of that with Steve Stivers during the Capitol riot, right? He's he's out there saying, right. hey, this, you know, what Trump did is wrong and bad and all that. We're going to run out of time, but I want to ask you something else. When I announced our policy of not covering Josh Mandel's ridiculous statements, his anti-Muslim nonsense, everything he does, I heard from a lot of people and it was overwhelmingly in support. Democrats and Republicans hate him. Has there been any poll that shows how high his negatives are? He gets a lot of attention, but it's all bad. And if you look at the reaction to his Twitter traffic, it's all bad. Has anybody done a poll that shows just how high his negatives are in comparison to his name recognition? Yeah, there's been some scant polling. It's been kind of, you know, partisan polling at this point, and I'm I'm hesitant to you know, dive a little too much into it. But um, so actually 314 Action, the group that was trying to recruit Amy Acton, they did a poll doing positives and negatives of each candidate. And unsurprisingly, he was underwater. I don't know the numbers exactly, okay. but it was, it, I was, it was, I think he might've been the only candidate who was significantly underwater in terms of approval. And that's probably accurate. I, I heard say. from a lot of Republicans that are desperately afraid that he'll be the candidate. They just don't want it. They don't, they don't believe in him. They, it's basically they want anybody else, which surprised me because he's been around a while, but they, they're all fed up with, I'll say anything, I'll do anything, I stand for nothing kind of approach. And, and I mean, it was overwhelming in, in favor of what we're doing. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. I told you guys we weren't going to get to all our questions today. We were going to go long, and we did. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Seth Richardson. We'll have to have you back on some future Wednesdays when Layla Tassi is not here. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.